Good to see you tonight. Thank you, Albert, for leading us tonight. We appreciate it. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be looking at Colossians 3, 18 through 21 tonight. And uh, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer here. Lord, again, we do thank you for the privilege to assemble. In Jesus' name, we open the Word of God, which is our authority. Uh, It is the message you have for us. And so, Lord, help us to take it to heart, to apply uh, the sense that you have for us in terms of, uh, Lord, we all have uh, authorities in our lives. And, uh, Lord, we are all to uh, submit to you as we submit to them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we consider the... uh, the text at hand tonight, pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're in Colossians, the uh, su- supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, and that is kind of how the book develops. We have an emphasis on this, the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1, this, the sufficiency of Christ in chapter 2, and then we are to live according to our position that we now have in Christ, chapter 3. Real emphasis in chapter 3 on put off and put on, right? What should we put off? The old man, yep, the old self. And we've died to him, now we need to put him off, too. And then, what are we to put on? The new man. Yeah, we're to uh, wear, in effect, our new identity in Christ. Uh, apply that to your life. Uh, that, that's the idea. Now, as you think about putting off and putting on, I, I think it starts in the home, right? It starts in the home. That, that's where Paul now goes after that emphasis. Uh, family life. And there's a, there's a context to everything we're, we're talking about. Uh, in my teaching, if I've taught anything through the years, and I have, I trust, <laughs> I have taught that we need to think in context wherever we are. And uh, there is a parallel text to Colossians chapter 3, which is Ephesians chapter 5. That's right. And the Ephesians 5 text... It goes on to talk about husbands and wives and children and masters, just like Colossians does. That's why I say it's a parallel passage. But it flows out of an emphasis in Ephesians 5 on be filled with the Spirit. The command to be filled with the Spirit looks like this in the family, as far as husbands and wives, uh, children, uh, slaves and masters. Uh, So that flows out of the Spirit-filled life in Ephesians 5. In Colossians Three, he doesn't emphasize, he doesn't say be filled with the Spirit, but what does he emphasize being filled with? Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, right? And so we see that as really kind of a parallel. Spirit-filled life, spirit-controlled life is the word-filled life. Uh, those are parallel. Uh, that, that's the, the parallel in terms of the uh, text emphasis we have in Ephesians 5 and now here in Colossians 3. So, uh, note what I've already told you. Uh, be not drunk with wine, which is, is dissipation. Uh, don't be under the influence, but be under the influence. Be filled, be controlled with the Spirit. And that's Ephesians 5. And then Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so uh, we see the, the spirit-filled life and the word-filled life are really parallel. Now, that sets the tone for everything he now goes on to share in context, related to how husbands and wives should relate, related to how children should obey their parents, related to how fathers should treat their children, and slaves and masters. So this really governs uh, the family life. 
Uh, Christianity is personal, right? Yes, it is personal, but it's also relational. It's relational. And that's the emphasis we have here. Uh, if, if we're a new creation in Christ and we have put on Christ, uh, that should demonstrate itself first and foremost in the home. And that's where he goes here. Now let's have somebody read verse 18. They're short little verses, but we'll kind of break them up. Uh, verse 18, who wants to read verse 18? Colossians 3.18. Yeah, John? This is one of the most offensive uh, truths in the New Testament. Why is that? Why, why is this verse so offensive? Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And why is that offensive? <laughs> yeah. How are they taking it? Well, that's true. It doesn't say that. <laughs> it does say to submit, though. That, that's true, and that's where the rub comes in. I mean, I've had Christian couples, and as they're getting married, say, I do not want uh, you to say this. Needless to say, somebody else did the, the, the marriage. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, even Christians kind of they stumble over this. It's like, what, what is the sense? Well, uh, the bottom line is the world has a real problem with what God has ordained, really in every realm. And uh, it is true, submission is uh, challenging, can be challenging. But, uh, you know, if you've got the husband loving as he ought to be loving, it shouldn't be that difficult to submit to a loving husband. What if he's not? Well, Peter says if you have any, a husband does not obey the word, you ought to submit to him too. So you've you got some challenges there. But anyway, uh, note uh, here this word submit. That is a key here. And in context here, it's the idea of recognize the headship role of the husband. Uh, you know, you can't have two heads. It's a, it's a freak if you've got two heads, right? I mean, uh, there has to be headship. And God has ordained that the husband be the head of the home. Um, now, as sometimes I think the church kind of looks to the world, takes their cues from the world. You've got the feminist movement out here in the world. Now you have a Christian feminist movement. And that's not really where we're to take our cues from. In fact, we're not to be conformed to the world. Uh, we are to be conformed to the image of Christ and, and the scriptures. But uh, really, I think sometimes it's, it's rebellion. Sometimes there is abuse, too. And when you have abuse, uh, sometimes people hide behind verses like this and say, you know, the, the, you just need to submit to that abuse. Well, that's all whack, too. And in all fairness, sometimes that becomes a problem uh, where, you know, what about if, if a husband is abusing his wife, is he loving her? Absolutely not. Uh, we, we ought not to stand for that any more than the other. So, uh, you know, there are issues sometimes. But I just want to hammer this because this New Testament does hammer it. Uh, the emphasis on wives submitting to their husbands is not an isolated teaching. We find it in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 1 Peter. Uh, these are the key references in the New Testament. And as I say, it's, it's not an isolated emphasis. Uh, we have it uh, emphasized by Paul. We have it emphasized by Peter. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a consistent emphasis. 
wives, submit to your own husbands. Uh, the issue is one of authority. Uh, and really, I think in submitting to God-ordained authority, which is the husband, and we're talking to Christians, the context is Christians here. It's a little more complicated if you have a, a, a believer married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever is, uh, you know, wanting to go the ways of the world and, and drag the Christian in that direction. Uh, that become, you know, we get all kinds of things involved there. But really, he's talking to Christians here in context. And uh, the word submit is really a military word that literally means to arrange under, in the sense of rank, uh, to arrange under, uh, to align yourself as prescribed by God. And so there is equal value, but there is different roles. Uh, Homer Kent says this, Homer Kent Jr., no intimation is given that this subjection is based on inferiority in intelligence. I'm pretty sure my wife is more intelligent than I. Did I hear an amen? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, morality, spirituality, worth, integrity, or any other quality. It's a relationship referring solely to authority. And, and headship authority as ordained by God in, in the home. I mean, there, there's no getting around it. And I think if we're going to submit to God, we have to submit to this truth. I mean, it is what God teaches and, of course, the world chafes against everything God has to say. I mean, they chafe against the very idea of sexual distinction between male and female. I mean, whatever it is that God says, they're chafing against it. Certainly going to chafe against this, too. Husband and wife have equal value, but they do have differing roles as ordained by God. God has placed a special responsibility on the husband, making him the leader, the head. So headship is male. Uh, that, that is why the wife is to uh, submit uh, to her own husband. By the way, uh, when Paul traces this back, both in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, he goes back to the created order. He goes back to creation as designed by God before the fall. This was, you know, he, he traces it back to uh, God's created order. But notice he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Um, you don't have to submit to somebody else's husband, right? Your own husband. I mean, he's, he's your, the, your head, uh, not somebody else. So it doesn't matter what somebody else, whatever. Mind your own business. You know, it's not, it's not, your, it's not your place. And uh, this uh, suggests here, too, wives, submit to your own husbands. It doesn't say, husbands, make your wives submit. Right? It doesn't say that. What's that suggest? Yeah, it's a voluntary uh, willfulness, willfulness on her part. She's, she's willing to do this because this is what God wants her to do. So uh, this is really between her and God. You know, this is ultimately between her and God. And uh, he's telling them to submit to their own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What do you suppose that means? As is fitting in the Lord. That's kind of a qualifier here. He does add a qualifier here, as is fitting in the Lord. Um, so he's really talking to Christians uh, who are in the Lord, uh, who have a relationship with the Lord. And he's saying, do this as is fitting in the Lord. Uh, what's the sense of that, do you suppose? Well, that's right. That's true. Uh, when might it not be fitting? Is there a case where it might not be? Yeah, it's, you never follow any leader into sin. Uh, you know, you have Ananias and Sapphira, 
they both dropped dead because they were both involved in the sin, right? You think she should have went along with this and said, uh, hubby, I, I'm, I'm not going along with this. I think that would have been the God-honoring thing to do. I think about Abigail back in the Old Testament. She was married to, well, a fool, right? His name means a fool, Nabal. And she, you know, had regard for God in the, se- in the sense that she had regard for the anointed, God's anointed, David. Nabal, the fool, he had no regard for God's anointed. Well, boy, in the end, uh, that worked out well for her. And she was known as a very wise woman for not following the fool in his foolishness. So, uh, you know, as is fitting in the Lord... Uh, We know that uh, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's always the principle, Acts 4, Acts 5. Uh, It doesn't matter what the authority is, whether it's a governing authority uh, in the home, in the church. We ought to obey God rather than men. Jesus is the Lord of the church, always. He's the ultimate authority. And as long as those authorities, uh, whatever they're asking us to do, if it's in sync with God, well, then we ought to do it. But if it's sinful, uh, no, then we defer to the higher authority, right? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is always the authority overall. So as is fitting in the Lord, which is uh, submit to your own husbands, uh, as is fitting in the Lord. I mean, the husband is leading uh, in accordance with biblical truth, uh, ought to recognize and submit to that leadership. Okay, um, any other thoughts? Okay. I'll take it that we covered it then. All right. Let's talk about husbands, shall we? I really think the husband has the higher uh, responsibility. Uh, Somebody want to read verse uh, 19? Yes, Dave. It's always kind of an interesting verse, especially that last part, right? But uh, husbands are clearly told to love their wives. The, The Greek word here, love, is agape, the intense word for love in the New Testament. And uh, the, the idea of agape love is to seek the other person's highest good. And uh, it's the idea of, of giving yourself sacrificially for the other person's highest good. It's of the will, thinks of the other person before self. And so this is how husbands are to love uh, their wives. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about the love chapter, uh, appropriately called 1 Corinthians 13, uh, husbands, you know, emphasis here applies to everybody. But love suffers long as kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, does not provoke, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So, uh, you know, this is the emphasis uh, for husbands in particular. Now, it's not that the wife isn't to love. Uh, it's not that the husband never yields in anything either. I mean, although the wife is told to submit. Uh, there's a lot of times if a husband is wise, he's going to think about what she has to say and say, oh yeah, I think you might be right. <laughs> I have to do that on a regular basis. It's always humbling. But anyway, uh, just kidding. Uh, husbands, love your wives. Uh, you know, in Ephesians, the parallel passage, he says, uh, as Christ loved the church, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Um, that's always a major command, tall command. Who can live up to that standard, to love my wife as Christ loved the church? The standard is Christ's love uh, for his people, for his church. But it's very clear, this is what we are to do. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. 
The word bitter is the opposite of sweet, okay? You got bitter, sweet, sweet and sour, right? Uh, we are not to be bitter towards them. We're not to be sour. Uh, we are to be sweet. And I think uh, the husband does set the tone in the home. I think the major responsibility rests on the husband as far as setting the tone in the home. It's not the wife has her place too, for sure. It's a, it's a joint thing. But uh, do not be bitter towards them. You know, uh, Peter has this to, to say to husbands. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Mistreat your wife, you don't have a prayer, right? At least they're hindered, right? And so uh, do not be bitter towards them. Uh, why do you think Paul maybe inserted this here? Are, are women and men different in any way? Uh, they are, and sometimes... Uh, Maybe we are not always as understanding and sensitive as we should be towards the, the female who tends to be more nurturing, more sensitive in some ways, maybe more sensible too in some ways. But, uh, you know, don't develop an attitude. Yeah, you're different, all right. But uh, don't be bitter. Uh, don't get a sour attitude. Yeah, that woman, you know, don't do that. Do not be bitter towards them. Uh, study your wife, uh, you know, uh, you need to know what her, where her buttons are. I've learned a thing or two about this through the years. I don't always apply it. But, uh, you know, we are to be students uh, of our wives. And we are to be sensitive, not, not bitter. We are to be understanding. And I think uh, have, a, have an attitude of sweetness. Uh, set that tone. Uh, not sourness. Not, not bitter. Okay, I have a little bit more to say on this verse, but anything else you want to interject before I go to my, my footnote here? Yes. I, well, I find it interesting that uh, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to be understanding with our wives. But it doesn't say that the wife should be understanding of the husband. <laughs> You're right. There's an emphasis being made, and that's where my footnote is going to go. I think... Uh, Men and women are different. He's speaking in general terms. It's not like uh, wives shouldn't love their husbands, right? But the emphasis is husbands love your wife. Uh, and like I say, it's not that the husband never yields to his wife. Uh, any sensible husband will tell you, yeah, there's times I, I do. As I look at this and I reason this out, you know, we need to do it that way. Not just insisting on my foolish way. <laughs> so there's a balance in there. But uh, here's my footnote here. Uh, we, ever since the fall, I'm speaking generally of, of humanity here, we have these tensions related to uh, male and female. It's just part of uh, the consequences of the fall. I think this is what uh, is talked about in Genesis 3.16. He said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, your conception. In pain, you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. Now, the question is, what does this word desire mean? What is the sense of that desire? Well, we don't probably really need to grapple with that too much because he uses the very same construction with the very same word in the next chapter. 
And here it is. Uh, we have 316. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. In talking to Cain, who is tempted to, uh, you know, do nasty things towards his brother, which he does end up doing, uh, God is telling him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you bring the proper offering, won't you be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. You're at a, you're at a crossroads here, Cain. What are you going to do? And he says... Sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, the idea here is it wants to control you. And so that seems to be the sense here, too. Your desire shall be for your husband. Uh, the, the, the wife is going to want to control the husband. I mean, this is part of the struggle. And uh, he says, uh, but uh, the husband has that headship role as ordained by God. So um, wives kind of resist the headship role of the husband. I think that's part of the struggle. What is, what is the antidote here? Uh, husbands can sometimes be passive. Uh, they can be, you know, bitter, be too sharp. Uh, so what's, what's the antidote? What's the solution? We have this, uh, this special tensions related to the fall, Genesis 3.16. The antidote is the uh, spirit-filled life, the word-filled life, where the wife ranks herself under the husband's headship and, and submits to that reality. And the husband loves his wife, exalts her in love uh, as he should do. And when you have that happening, it's a beautiful thing. It's the prescription that God has ordained. And that's what we have here in verses 18 and 19. All right. Uh, any other thoughts? Yeah. Right, right. It's the antidote for wives submitting to their husbands. It's the idea that we are in, completely we are in submission to God. And when we are focused on Him and in submission to Him, that will align all of the relationships that we have correctly. And so it's, 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 that, it's that idea in Colossians that we're like keeping our eyes focused on Right, Amen. And I think if the, if the husband really focuses on loving his wife as he ought to do, and if the wife is really focused on in honor to God, I'm going to you know, honor my husband, I'm going to submit to my... Uh, it, it's a beautiful thing, what, what God does when, when we really follow the prescription here that God has given. All right, anyone else? Okay, let's go on to verse uh, 20. Uh, who wants to read verse 20 for us? Yes, Andrew. Okay. <laughs> now, when he says children, uh, the context here is that they are still under the authority of, of the parents in the home. Uh, and honor is always appropriate, no matter what age we are to honor our parents. But, uh, you know, obeying your parents in all things, uh, you know, once you get to be of age and you're outside the home, that takes on a different connotation, right? And uh, so clearly we're talking about uh, children who are still in the home. The idea of obey is, is to listen. Listen with uh, the response, the positive response of being obedient. Uh, we say this to our kids. Maybe your parents said this to you too. Are you listening to me? <laughs> well, that's the idea. Are, are you going to obey? Are you going to obey? 
And that's the idea uh, here. Obey means to listen uh, with the idea of responding with obedience. Uh, I like to say, as far as kids, uh, it, the spirit-filled life for children is very simple, right? Uh, just obey your parents in everything. I mean, this is pretty all-inclusive. Obey your parents in all things. I mean, you don't have to search out what direction this is. Just ask your parents. Do whatever they tell you to do. It's very simple, the word-filled life here. Obey your parents in all things. And this is a really big deal. I mean, (laughs) we live in a world where it's kind of like, parents, obey your children in all things. I mean, just do whatever they want you to do. Yeah, destroy them. Yeah, a good way to, to destroy your kids. Just do, do that. The world has it backwards again. Uh, the matter of children obeying parents is a big deal in the Bible. It's the first commandment in the second table of the law where children are told to honor their parents that it may be well with them and that they may live long on the earth. And I joke about that with my kids. I say, you know, obey that you, that you may live long. <laughs> But seriously, that's what it said in the Old Testament. Uh, And in the New Testament, also in Ephesians 6. Striking or cursing parents was punishable by death in the Old Testament. Uh, Proverbs over and over and over pleads with children to listen to their parents and predicts dire consequences for those who scorn their parents. So this is a really big deal uh, in the scriptures. Here in uh, Romans 1.30, it lists uh, disobedient to parents as one of the traits that defines a society given over to a debased mind. It's right in the mix of the list, including sexual immorality, wickedness, murder, haters of God, violence, etc. Paul goes on to say that those who practice such things are deserving of death. So this is a big deal. It's It's in that, you say, well, boy, I don't think this should be in this terrible list. Well, it is. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3, 2, Paul lists disobedient to parents as one of the sins that will define the last days. Of course, this sin has always been around, but it will mark the last days for society in a very pronounced way. And I think we live there. Uh, that, that's where we are today. Uh, one of the key problems of society is when you, ha- when you have the home coming apart at the seams, you have society coming apart at the seams. Uh, you know, the home is the foundational uh, foundation for the whole of society. Where you have a breakdown of authority in the home, uh, it reflects itself in many ways uh, throughout society. And then he says, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Again, the context assumes a Christian home, Christian parents. And uh, as they are asking you to do things that are in keeping with the scriptures, uh, to obey them in all things is well-pleasing uh, to the Lord. Warren Wiersbe says this, The child who does not learn to obey his parents is not likely to grow up obeying any authority. Uh, I think that's true. Uh, We learn a lot about authority, even God, from the authoritative figures in the home. And if you have no regard for the parental authority, you probably have no regard for governmental authority, no regard for God's authority, no regard for authority. That's so true. The child who does not learn to obey his parents is not likely to grow up obeying any authority. He will defy his teachers, the police, his employers, and anyone else who tries to exercise authority over him. The breakdown in authority in our society reflects the breakdown of authority in the home. For the most part, children do not create problems. They reveal them. Yep, I think uh, Mr. Wearsby was right on there. Okay. Um, Well, as children mature... 
uh, they, uh, they get a mind of their own, right? And uh, it's kind of like Mark Twain said, it's amazing how much the old man learned in six short years or something between, you know, whatever it was, 18 and 24. Uh, but, uh, you know, children do uh, come to the point of maturity where they make their own choices. And, uh, you know, we'd like to think, well, boy, we raised them right. They're just going to be, they're going to be fine. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe not. Um, Jesus said this as well. Matthew 10, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's going to be division. I did not come to set, uh, I, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. Some are going to decide for Christ and some are going to decide against Christ. Uh, it's just part of the reality in this fallen world. Now, the influence, the Christian influence, is certainly great, and God uses that influence, but it's not a guarantee that, boy, if I just do everything right, my kids are going to just line up uh, with uh, Christianity. Not necessarily. Um, but we do want to be responsible and do everything we can to bring them up in the admonition, nurture of the Lord. And, and verse 21 goes along with that. Uh, who wants to read that for us? Verse 21. Yeah, Anita. Okay, <clears throat> so uh, specifically to fathers, sometimes this word fathers can be used in a general sense, uh, in the sense of parents, but he's already spoke uh, to parents in verse 20, and it seems now he's coming back to the, the fathers who are, in Jewish context, the main disciplinarians. And uh, uh, normally fathers are the main disciplinarians, so certainly in a Jewish context, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. What son is there whom a father uh, does not chasten? I mean, in Jewish society, it was unthinkable that a father would not chasten his children. And it was just, it was just a given that this is uh, a primary function of the father. Uh, the mother, too, but especially the father. And uh, I know in our home, when, uh, when the children were led back to the office, it was a, it was a grim situation, Right? Serious and mother dealt with them too, but it was really serious when you're coming back to the office to see dad. Uh, but he says, fathers, uh, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. There's a balance all the way through here. And uh, in this word-filled life, the spirit-filled life, yes, there's discipline, but there's also nurturing balance. Uh, and so he says to the fathers, he's got a special note here, do not provoke your children. The, the idea of provoke is to irritate, to stir up, to harass, uh, to agitate. It's the idea of misusing your authority in an unhealthy way. Again, I think we come back to uh, the tone. You don't want to humiliate the children. Uh, you don't want to uh, make unreasonable demands. Uh, you don't want to be unbalanced. Uh, you don't want to have a lack of love. Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. The idea of discouraged is uh, disheartened, uh, frustrated, depressed, uh, literally sullen or, or listless is the idea. And so there is a balance here. Uh, children are all different. And a wise father will balance discipline with loving understanding of a child's unique personality and maturity level. He will discern between open defiance and childish irresponsibility. He would balance negative disciplinary correction with positive encouragement. 
So again, I think there's, there's a lot of balance in good fathering. Um, John MacArthur lists uh, 10 ways you can potentially uh, uh, provoke, exasperate your children. The idea of provoke is to exasperate. And he's got a lot of good uh, godly wisdom here. First, parents can exasperate their children by overprotection. Second, parents can exasperate their children by uh, showing favoritism. Third, parents exasperate their children by uh, deprecating their worth. Fourth, parents exasperate their children by uh, setting unrealistic goals. Fifth, parents exasperate their children by failing to show affection. Sixth, some parents exasperate their children by not providing for their needs. Seventh, parents exasperate their children by a lack of standards. This is the flip side of overprotection. Eighth, uh, parents exasperate their children by criticism. Ninth, uh, parents exasperate their children by neglect. Uh, Finally, parents exasperate their children by excessive discipline. Well, a lot of things you could probably add there, or, you know, it's a general statement here. Uh, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. He doesn't flesh it out. But there's a lot of different ways you could discourage them and, uh, uh, you know, be a negative influence in that sense. I do think a key thing with children is to have a healthy relationship with your kids. Uh, you know, there's an old saying that says, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. And uh, so there needs to be a healthy relationship. But you can't just be buddy-buddy either. Uh, there has to be an authoritative role by the parent. Sometimes parents just want to be like kids to the kids, like I'm, we're, we're buddies. Well, it, the authoritative role has to be there. And, and yet we want to build a healthy relationship with them. Well, sometimes parents uh, get very discouraged because they have a wayward prodigal daughter, son. And I always think about uh, Cain and Abel. Did they have the same parents? Cain and Abel. Now, they raised one right, obviously, and the other one they didn't. Right? I'd say they've raised them the same way, same home, same parents. How about Jacob and Esau? Raised one way, one one way, and another the other way. No, I, I same home. There were some issues in the home there, of course. But uh, you know, uh, children make up their own minds. I said to my kids when they went off to college, "Now we're going to see what you're really made of." Under my home, you know, I said I always told them, "Hey, you get crazy and you get out of line, I'm going to have to get out of the ministry." And uh, you know, I have to have my home in control. So they knew that. Later, after they're long gone, I find out they're sneaking out the windows in the middle of the night and that kind of thing. It's a good thing I didn't find that out. We might have had a funeral, but anyway. (laughs) But then we come back to verse 21, don't provoke your children. But anyway, um, you know, it's interesting in the Old Testament. Samuel was one of the most godly men in the history of Israel. He's ranked right up there, Jeremiah 15.1, like one of top three in Israel's history. How did his sons turn out? They were rotten, wicked men. Samuel, failure. <laughs> not really, not necessarily. Because say, I think you can be a very godly person and your kids, when they reach a certain age, they will make their own decisions. And sometimes there are prodigal children, uh, no matter how godly the parent might be. Uh, how about uh, Eli? I like to compare uh, Samuel with Eli. Now, Eli was a, a believer, I think the scriptures would teach that. But what was Eli's problem? 
His sons were wicked too. Samuel's sons were wicked. Eli's sons were also wicked. But God judged Eli in a way he didn't judge Samuel. How come? He was a compromiser. He was skating along with what, what the kids were doing there, like stealing the best offerings and, and, and that kind of thing, and gross immorality, kind of skating along, letting it, didn't really take a stand. So I would infer by that, Samuel must have taken a stand versus Eli, if you're going to be uh, consistent there. Well, uh, let's wrap this up. I've got a few more slides here. <clears throat> At the end of the day, children make their own choices. We can influence them, discipline, love them, encourage them. And we want to do all these things. But they must receive Christ for themselves. God has no grandchildren. You know, I can't do it. I can't do it for anybody. If I could, I'd certainly do it for my kids and my grandkids, you know. But I can't do it. God has no uh, grandchildren. As I say, when I sent my kids off to college, I always told them, now we'll see what you are really made of. Which would be reflected in their life choices made independent of their parents. You know, when you really get away from your parents and you're making your own choices, what are those choices going to be? That's going to be telling. That'll tell the story. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is a wisdom principle, but not a promise. Read the book of Proverbs through, and you will find a parent pleading with his child to go in the way of wisdom. It's no guarantee that he will automatically do it. We pray, we counsel, we plead, we pray, and then we pray some more. And, and how true that is. I think there is a wisdom principle. As you build into your kids, you know, hopefully that they will stick with that and they will continue on that journey. But you know, I have to take the whole counsel into view. Like even Christ said, there will be a division in the home. Well, how does the new man look in the word-filled home where each member strives to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus? You know, after he said, um, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that leads into this. Well, how does this look? Well, the wife submits to the husband. The husband loves his wife. The children obey their parents. And the father sets a balanced tone in his leadership style. So to wrap this up, uh, new creation, new creations, as we are in Christ. Uh, a new creation, I think, shows up first and foremost in the home. And if it's not real in the home, you've got to really wonder if it's real in the heart. If it's not real there, uh, as Spurgeon said, even your dog or your cat should know that there's been a change. <laughs> Uh, the tone in the home should be such uh, that it's reflected. Uh, our submission to the Lord, how, how we treat our spouse, how we treat our kids, uh, that should be reflected in terms of our new identity that we now have in Jesus Christ. All right, any other thoughts as we wrap up here? Is it John? I knew it was one of those. Blake and John. Uh, I had a 50% chance. This is why I don't go to the casino. <laughs> it's not the only reason. <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts here? Okay, let's uh, share some prayer requests here. Uh, you got anybody need a prayer sheet? Yep. Okay, several people do. Somebody want to give me a uh, help? Oh, you need one? <laughs> okay. Here. There's several people got their hand up back here. <laughs> 